Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host today. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Evergrande, the Chinese property company, which is in the process of going bust as we speak. Evergrande and inflation and why the model matters for connecting those two. But first, before we get into that, I want to spend a moment or two about last week's Consumer Price Index report, which I didn't really think was controversial at the time, but as the days have gone on, it has seemed more and more like there maybe is some controversy. I suppose there's always, whenever there's something that's vaguely confusing about an economic number, you have people on both sides of the argument who take it as proof that their side is right. But for some reason, I was still taken aback or surprised <laughs> that this time that happened. So as a quick summary, what happened was we got a, a an inflation number, uh, a core inflation number of only 0.1%. So below kind of what the trend was prior to the crisis uh, and, and making it look like transitory inflation is the winning argument. Um, unfortunately, if you dig at all, what you what you rapidly figure out is that far from being a weak number, it actually in, in many ways was a strong number. All of that weakness in that in that in the main core inflation came from the what we used to call the reopening categories, and maybe now they're the reclosing categories. So we had lodging away from home. That's that's, host, uh, that's hotels, that fell 2.92% month on month. We had airfares down over 9%. We had used cars down 1.5%, and car and truck rental down 8.5%. Now, back when those figures were spiking higher, uh, folks said that those are the reopening categories. We need to ignore them. But now the, re the people who are calling inflation transitory look at those figures and they say, look, look, that's proof that it was transitory. They're going back down. But it doesn't make sense to ignore them in one direction, not to ignore them in another. So if you look a little deeper, so I ignored them on both sides, right? So when they were going up like crazy, it clearly they affected the headline numbers. They were super surprising. But I always wanted to look at the breadth of what was happening. And I wanted to look at rents because if you can get rents right, then you're not going to be wrong on the overall core inflation very much. So owner's equivalent rent was up about a quarter of a percent month on month. Uh, so that's something around 3%. And primary rents, rent a primary residence, that is if you actually rent your apartment, say, or rent your home, uh, that was 0.31% month on month. So something more closer to 4% year on year. Uh, annualize, annualizing that for 12 months, you get something more like 4%. Uh, so, and that was part of the what we had been expecting to happen is this reacceleration in rents. So, so that definitely happened. And... And in fact, when you kind of got outside of those reclosing categories, what you found was there were a whole lot of categories that were inflating a little bit faster than before. And so median inflation, the Cleveland Fed reports a median inflation number, which is, because this is what median means, 50% of the categories were inflating slower than this number, 
uh, and 50% were inflating faster than this number on the month. Uh, and and they that number for the month for Cleveland Fed was was 0.33%, which was the highest monthly number uh, since 2007. Now, the median is is a useful figure because it isn't, unlike core, it isn't, uh, it isn't infected by by crazy one out one off outlandish numbers. So you know when when car and truck rental falls eight and a half percent, it doesn't affect the median because that's that's a left tail and it doesn't get included. It's it's way down there, and so the median and things like trimmed mean those are better indications of the central tendency of inflation because we get these big outliers all the time, and the fact that median inflation was the highest in 14 years is not insignificant and is a much stronger signal than the 0.1% on core inflation that led the transitory people to having such a celebration. So that's all I kind of wanted to talk about there. I, I don't think the number, again, I didn't think that should be terribly controversial because outside of those reclosing categories, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of good news on the inflation front. But um, uh, it turned out to be a little bit controversial, so I thought I would mention it. So now we'll go into the news of the day and, and really the purpose of today's podcast, and that is Evergrande and and really the ongoing government-induced weakness in Chinese markets generally that is now starting to infect Western markets. So overnight, um, you know, there's obviously this story that we've known this for a while that Evergrande is probably going to miss some some interest payments, uh, I think, on Tuesday. And and for some reason, that kind of started bothering people today. The Hang Seng, the, the, the Hong Kong market was down 3.3%. A lot of the European markets were very weak, down more than 2% uh, during the morning. And as I am recording this now, the Dow is off 800 points, which is 2.3%, and the the S&P a little bit more than that, and the NASDAQ a little bit more than that still. And so there's clearly a risk-off mood. Now, there's every reason in the world for stocks to not be at this level, and so there's every reason in the world for stocks to continue to decline, but this is not uh, about that. And we could have made that statement any time over the last couple of years. All the same reasons, um, valuation-wise, for for equity markets to not be where they currently are. But that's not what this discussion is about. I really don't think stocks are going to decline a ton. That has been a bad bet for a long time. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Someday they will. But this isn't about today. What I want to talk about is the model and how asset markets connect into inflation. And, and, the, and to talk about the model itself, because as, as I've discussed on earlier podcasts, the model really does matter for inflation. And this is a great illustration of, of how the model matters in interpreting what's going on in markets. If you espouse a mainstream interpretation of, of inflation causality... Lower stocks cause or or are caused by, it doesn't really matter which way the causality runs, lower growth. Okay, so lower growth is coincident with declining uh, equity markets. Okay, and lower growth means lower pressure on product and service markets. And 
that means a decline in aggregate demand, which means that with no change in aggregate supply, you should have less price pressure. Ergo, when you have stocks going down, it means bonds go up uh, because you have less price pressure. It means break-evens, uh, inflation expectations decline, and inflation itself declines. So now note that there's a problem here with the prescription for the, for the Federal Reserve if this is the true way, if this, if this is a true description of, of how this transmission works. If the Fed tapers, then do stocks fall? If they don't fall, does that mean the Fed needs to taper more? In other words, is, is the transmission mechanism that the Fed tapering, just decline, you know, decreasing the amount of purchases they're making, causes stocks to go down, stocks going down causes growth to slow, and uh, because of the wealth effect, and that decreases aggregate demand, and that causes decrease in price pressures? Um, or, or is the mechanism, or is that effect additive? In which case, when the Fed tapers, they have the direct effect of the taper, whatever that is, plus a random effect from the stock market. That obviously would be kind of problematic um, if that's if if that's the the case. I mean, the Fed can control. Asset markets, maybe, at some level, and they can control demand, maybe, at some level, but they can't control supply. And they, if they control demand through interest rate policy, which, you know, that just seems like an amazingly blunt instrument if it's also going to cause major changes in other asset markets, which have weird additional knock-on effects. And there's this, this additional problem, of course, that if the Federal Reserve, by tapering and or raising interest rates, if the only rate, way that they can reduce pressure on prices is to reduce aggregate demand, which causes the unemployment rate to go up, then the two parts of their mandate are inherently at odds with one another. And, and, and to be fair, lots of people believe that's the case. Um, but it means that there may not be one optimal monetary policy. Um, there may be, in fact, two optimal monetary policies, which are unlike one another, depending on whether you want to optimize growth or optimize inflation. And in fact, that's what I believe the Fed is currently wrestling with, that the Fed currently has decided they want to optimize growth. They want to optimize the unemployment rate. And that means they cannot also optimize inflation and therefore they're not going to care. But if this is the accurate description of the way the world works, then it means that the Fed's optimal policy will be one thing until all of a sudden they decide that inflation matters, and then it will be dramatically different. There'll be another optimal policy. That's obviously an awful way to run a circus, uh, but it sort of follows from the belief that tapering works through asset markets and interest rates um, and and that all these asset markets are sort of related to that. Now, if you're a monetarist, which as it happens, I, I am, uh, then the model of variable 
variables that we have to forecast are M, V, and Q. The money supply, the growth in the money supply, change in monetary velocity, and change in real output. And the net result is change in prices. It's a very much more simple model. There's no stocks in here. It's much cleaner. Um, now, whether or not you're right or wrong still depends on how good you forecast those things, which is not trivial to do. But it doesn't depend on, on your model having all these weird knock-on effects and, and recursive effects that you can't really model very well and that require an ever-increasing complexity model. So, in the view of a monetarist, what happens when stocks go down? Well, what, what that means is that the Fed, all else being equal, will stay easier. Now, maybe if the Fed did not truly care about the level of asset markets, as they probably shouldn't, it would not have any impact on your forecast about the money about money supply growth. But in the re, in the real world, it does. And so, you know, if stocks were to, dec to decline, say, 20%, what would happen to my forecast? I would say, well, the Fed's going to stay easier than they otherwise would. So money supply growth will, will, will not continue to decelerate. It'll stay the same, you know, 10 or 12%, or it'll reaccelerate, depending on what they do. What will happen to monetary velocity? Well, maybe monetary velocity will decline if we've had this precipitous decline in in stocks uh, because of a an increase in the demand for precautionary balances. So maybe you get a, a short-term decline in money velocity, um, and interest rates will be lower in this sort of scenario than they otherwise would be, and that will tend to to dampen velocity, not necessarily to make it go down, but at least keep it from rising as much. So maybe your forecast of velocity in such a case is that it probably doesn't move up as much as we would expect if the Fed really were entering a tapering cycle. And so with the MV side of the equation, we have you know, money supply uh, no longer decelerating or accelerating, and money velocity stable, maybe even declining a little bit, but you have the left side of the equation not, if anything, maybe being uh, you know, going up a little bit, um, but but certainly not not probably not changing a whole lot from what the forecast maybe would have been. On the right side of the equation, Q real growth. This is where the decline in stocks being related to lower growth um, would be a pretty important, uh, pretty important uh, uh, model input, right? Except that in a monetarist model, it has the opposite effect as it does in the Keynesian model. So in the in the first model we discussed, the decline in in stocks and the, the decline in growth um, means that you have a decline in aggregate demand and prices and price pressures diminish. In the monetarist model, a decline in the growth rate means that for all else equal, for the same M and V. Uh, a declining Q means that your prices actually accelerate. Basically, you have the same monetary pressure, MV, distributed over less real growth, and therefore the only outlet is that prices have to go up. And so that's sort of a strange counterintuitive conclusion, but at this level, there's a big discrepancy, a big difference between 
a monetarist model and a Keynesian model when it comes to the effect of declining financial asset prices on and declining growth uh, on, on inflation. Now, there's a, an additional wrinkle here that makes this even more confusing, but this is an important wrinkle, and that is that you have to distinguish between headline inflation and core inflation or median inflation because energy, which is the difference between core inflation and headline inflation, is food and energy. But energy is always really pretty much directly tied to growth. And so when growth slows, energy prices tend to go down. When growth accelerates, energy prices tend to go up. And this induces this correlation that people believe they see in the data between inflation and growth. It's, it almost entirely comes from energy. And so if you, you really have to strip that out when you when you're looking at this, because otherwise what's going to happen is both models will be right. The monetarist model will be uh, more correct when it comes to core inflation, and the Keynesian model will be more correct when it comes to headline inflation, and they'll both, they'll both claim that they're correct, when what really happened was the Keynesian model simply correctly forecast that lower growth would mean lower energy prices, and that's really not that big of a forecast at all. So, sort of to tie it up, let me make it. Let me make a, a prediction, or let me make at least a contingent prediction. If the decline that we have in in stocks today, if it turns into a route, what do I think is going to happen? So, I believe that if we got stocks down 20, 30 percent, what's going to happen is money supply growth is going to reaccelerate. There won't be a taper. In fact, there'll be probably an increase in purchases, um, and and the, the Fed will completely abandon the idea that inflation is a concern because to them, the declining stock prices mean that inflation is not going to be a concern. And so money supply growth will reaccelerate. Money velocity will be reasonably steady. It won't rebound as much as, that I, as I had thought, but it also isn't going to go down much further because it's already at, at levels that reflect some amount of precautionary demand for money and very low interest rates. And it's just hard to get velocity to go down much further from here. And so, and, and you'll have also then declining Q, declining real growth. And the combination of those things that net net, this would probably such a, an outcome as a rapidly, a rapid decline in the stock market would probably worsen core inflation pressures versus whatever your baseline was going in. Um, it would probably mean that headline inflation pressures would decline, but core inflation and pressures would continue to, pro to broaden and to get worse. So that's, um, <laughs> that is a, a perhaps a different view from what you will see elsewhere, but that's okay. I mean, it doesn't make sense to listen to lots and lots of podcasts with all the same views. Now, does it? The monetarist model is very simple. It's easy to understand. It's easy to see what the potential problems are with the model. And that's what I like about it. There is, as someone who's designed a lot of models over a long period of time, I can tell you that my favorite models are the ones that are very easy to understand all the dynamics of. And while there's some complexity to the monetarist model, there are fewer moving parts and fewer interactions and recursions, and it makes it easier to understand what's going on and what's going wrong if your forecast isn't right. And uh, 
on a future podcast, I'll talk about what makes a good model and what makes a bad model and why to prefer why to prefer one type of model over another. Uh, but that's not today's topic. Today's topic was about why we should or how we, we should expect a decline in asset prices to be reflected in Federal Reserve policy and in and inflation itself. Now, very likely, this decline is not going to turn into that sort of waterfall decline, and this will be a point to just file away and think about in the future. But uh, it's today's topic, and so that's why I wanted to bring it up. I'm sure that many of you listening have different views. If you have different views that you'd like to share, uh, please get the Inflation Guy app and send me a note from within there or go to EnduringInvestments.com and fill out the contact form and, and send me a note there. Uh, and I, I read all of these things and I will get back to you and uh, we can have a conversation uh, about that. And perhaps I will bring up your, your topic or address your topic on a future sense and sensibility. Thanks for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy. And I remind you to defend your money. If inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.